0: When Trust Business Lunch, Lisa Glink joins us. Monday is about this time. It's Monday about this time. Hi, Elise. Welcome back.
1: Hey, John. Nice to be here.
0: You can read her stuff on Substack, glink.substack.com, and always click on thinkglink.com. You're always thinking about real estate, among other things, but I thought this was a real interesting Redfin report you pointed to about how long people are in their homes. What's going on here?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, historically, we stayed in our homes, I don't know, between 8 and 10 years, and then Two decades ago, that really switched, and it dropped to six and a half years. That's when people started to make a lot of money. Um, home prices were jumping, and they were we changed the law on keeping the first two hundred and fifty thousand or five hundred thousand dollars in profits tax free. So people would flip their homes, go to the next one, you know make money there, flip it, take the profits, um, which was interesting. and then all of a sudden, people are now spending. 12 years in their home, almost twice as much as two decades ago. It's a really big change, John.
0: And it's because why?
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. There are so many reasons that have all come together and all in a very short period of time. So we've got baby boomers aging in place, right? Thanks to technology and medical advances, more people can stay in their homes longer. So 40%, almost 40% of baby boomers are living in the home where they've lived for at least 20 years. I know we are. um, I hate to admit that I'm the last year of the baby boomers, but we've been here for a long time. And another 16% of boomers have lived in their home uh, 10 to 19 years. And even Gen Xers are getting in on this. 35% of Gen Xers are living in the home they've lived in for at least 10 years. So we're seeing uh, the older half of the population really staying longer. But older homeowners... Typically, have either paid down or paid off their mortgages. Mm-hmm. So, if you own it free and clear, the cost of staying is super cheap. Um, and if you are uh, still of a mortgage, likely is that you've got a mortgage of less than four percent. And given that interest rates are six and a half percent now, you're incentivized to hang in there as well. So, lots of reasons that people are staying.
0: You know, I was about to say, I wonder what the numbers were two years ago when interest rates were better. But we're talking about twelve years in the house, so. Um, even though it's more difficult to get out of the house now. It sounds like some of these numbers would have already been baked in anyway.
1: Oh, well, they have, right. So after what we saw basically starting in 2014, 15, 16, you know, interest rates really got pushed down. And we had interest rates at about 3% for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage for a number of years. And people really took advantage of that. So we did see a big boost in moving uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, which was four years ago. But even that isn't enough to you know, really eat into all of these boomers who are just staying in their houses. And it's causing and, and is part of the reason why we only have three months of inventory out there, the homes yeah, available yeah, to sell.
0: Right, right. Uh, They're Although, just not there. Do you think this is part of it too? Um, you don't have to move for your job anymore.
1: Well, it's a big reason. Well, it's sort of you do and you don't, right? So you, a lot of people don't. You can work from home, but you do have a push by CEOs to bring people back to the office and they want them there two to three times a week. So There's a number of CEOs that have pushed that out. Uh, Amazon, for example, if you don't go back to the office, you're going to get fired.
0: Yeah, Uh, right.
1: People are coming back.
0: But but maybe we're at another inflection point now. Then maybe, maybe in fact, people will start to. Well, uh, I suppose if you're at home, uh, you don't have to sell your home to go back to work. You'll just get back on the highway. But it seems to me like some jobs will require you to be at the new job which is no longer in chicago it's in tulsa and you're going to have to move they're not going to let you maybe be a uh, a a worker from home Uh, i i I guess what i'm wondering is i wonder if these numbers are going to start to go back down now
1: i think that we will see some fluctuation but i don't think we're going to see much i mean maybe it'll go uh, from 12 percent to 11 percent or maybe we'll get back to that historic Eight to ten percent, but one thing I don't think we're going to see for a while is going back to six or six and a half percent. And you're the talking about
0: years I, or percents there.
1: Excuse me, I misspoke. Yeah, as uh, six sitting. six years. Not to confuse everybody more than I'm confusing myself. No, 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 it's good. Uh, six years. I just don't know that we're going to get there until interest rates. This is where the percentage came in. Interest rates drop down dramatically from where they are, and then I think we will see a big surge of people moving.
0: Talk to me about Americans who are or are not middle class. What does that even mean,
2: Elise?
1: You know, it's interesting. There are a lot of definitions. uh, And it's interesting when you actually survey Americans what they think it means. So before we talk about numbers like actual dollar figures, uh, there was a survey that was done by the Washington Post that asked people, what do you think needs to be considered as being part of the middle class? A secure job? ability to save money for the future, ability to afford an emergency $1,000 expense without taking on debt, ability to pay all your bills on time without worrying. All of those 90 plus percent are part of middle class. But then... Having health insurance, the ability to retire comfortably, having sick leave, time and money for vacations, owning a home, eating at a restaurant whenever you want, and a college paying for a college education, those are also considered part of middle class. And unfortunately, according to the, uh, the Federal Reserve, just a third of Americans have the financial wherewithal to meet their own definition of middle class which I thought was actually really interesting because nine out of 10 Americans think that those first six things that I talked about, right? The having a job with health insurance, steady employment, saving for the future, paying your bills without worry, affording emergency expenses and retiring comfortably, you know, only about a third of people can actually afford that. And when you look at the amount of money that it takes to actually afford that lifestyle, you can understand because... Pew Research Center says that middle-class income ranges from two-thirds to twice the national median income, or about $68,000, up to $203,000. And yet only a third of Americans are able to afford the things that they think are part of a middle-class lifestyle.
0: Mm, I guess that is uh, discouraging. I was thinking it was interesting that the definition of middle-class is not a number though it's not an income amount because maybe you will have a secure job and you will be able to save and you can pay your bills because your house and your bills aren't that expensive and um you you know you and and you have squirreled away a thousand dollars for an emergency debt Uh, the point being maybe my house is bigger and that guy's house is bigger still Um, And so those people would need progressively more money. But if you live within your means, you can manage a quote-unquote middle-class lifestyle. You see what I'm saying? It's not an amount of money you have to earn. It could be something you might control more by how you choose to live.
1: Yeah. No, I think there's certainly a lot of that. One thing, though, that's sort of interesting is that the way you define it, it's how it makes you feel. Yeah, that's it. Rather than... You know what you're actually earning but that said you know think about it um you and i've talked about this extensively sixty percent of parents are providing financial support to their adult children aged 18 to 34 right when you're doing that and 62 percent of all americans are living paycheck to paycheck so you're you're talking about nearly two-thirds of americans that are supporting their millennial and gen x kids and you're also talking about two-thirds of Americans that are just scraping it by. None of that means that you are actually getting those six pieces or pillars or seven pieces or pillars of, of your middle-class lifestyle, the things that you think are going to make you feel better. And I, I thought that what was illuminating about this, John, is when we talk about how <coughs> Americans are feeling about the economy. You've got economists saying this is one of the strongest economies the U.S. has ever had. And people are saying, well, that may be, but it doesn't feel that way to me. And I wonder if the mismatch is that their lifestyle or their money that they're making is not letting them achieve things like health insurance and saving for the future and paying their bills without worry. They are worried about all those things because they can't do them. They're not achieving them or they don't feel like they're Mm -hmm. making progress towards them.
0: 60% of us are helping our adult children financially? Is yeah, that what that's you said? the
1: new numbers out from uh, Pew Research Center.
0: And what's the age of the kids that we're helping?
1: Uh, 18
0: to 34. 60% of us. I know you've said that. I'm just still processing that.
1: <laughs> I think if you asked everybody who's listening today to text in, are you or are you not, I'm pretty sure that it would be you know, right in line. You know, Pew came and to, out. With- and
0: to what tune, by the way? Go ahead. Three one two nine eight one seven two hundred. Oh. How, if you're helping your kids financially, God bless you. And if you're the recipient of that, aren't you fortunate? I, I, you know, I think you get to spend your money any way you want. So, if a vacation is one thing, or you're going to help your kids with their college debt, shoot, uh, no judgment here. It's your money; you spend it any way you want. I'm just wondering, to what tune are you paying? Uh, to help your kids between the ages of 18 and 34.
1: Yeah, well I think what you're gonna find is that it isn't even just paying down college debt. I think they're helping them with their rent, their food, and some of the other choices that they're making. And We'll see what they say, right?
0: Uh, okay. And the, and, and the things that people say define uh, a middle-class lifestyle or a secure job, ability to save money for the future, ability to afford a $1,000 debt, ability to pay bills on time without worry, having health insurance, the ability to retire comfortably. Well, that last one's kind of a deal breaker. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, okay. But uh, only 87% of people thought that was part of the middle class. Only.
0: In other, boy, that should be 100%. I mean, everybody should be able to imagine a way and that you'll retire comfortably, you know, and then, de- and then define comfortably, of course. Um, anything else you want to mention? Uh, these are interesting numbers.
1: No, I just, um, it's interesting to me, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, which are the big secondary market lenders for real estate, released their annual reports. And Fannie Mae had $17.5 billion in annual net income. That's their net income. Of course, all of that goes to the federal government, which is great. Freddie Mac had net income of ten and a half billion, and those companies. Um, Fannie Mae is worth like seventy-seven billion, and Freddie Mac, you know, is worth a little bit less. But OpenAI, the new AI company that that makes ChatGPT, has two billion dollars of revenue, and it's worth a hundred billion dollars. Okay. So. It's just, I, this is mind-blowing how fast AI is growing and these uh, ChatGPT and the Claude model from Anthropic are just literally blowing up as, as just people all over the world are trying to get use them and that's why these companies are valued at so much money.
0: Elise Glink is the owner of Think Glink Media and Best
1: Money Moves,
0: you can find her at thinkglink.com as well. Let's talk next Monday. Thank you, Elise.
1: Always a pleasure, John.
0: Tequila Talk on WGN Radio. Joining us now is Duimo Umolu, who is the founder of John Basile Tequila. This is a uh, local company with an interesting, very local story. Duimo, welcome to WGN Radio.
3: How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Who is John Basile? (laughs) So John is my grandfather's name and uh Basile was my dad's godfather. He made it possible for my dad to come to school in the States. So in our tradition, you name your oldest son after your father. Um but because Basil was so prominent in my dad's life at the time, he named my oldest brother John Basil. So every sip is just a sip to legacy, it's paying homage to the folks that sacrificed and uh, you know, gave us the opportunities that we have. And just a reminder that folks are coming after us. So let's do our part to try to push the dream forward. Duimo Umolu, where are you? Where's your family from? So my dad is of Nigerian descent. My mom is of Ghanaian descent, but she was raised in London. They both met in Chicago and uh, gave birth to me and my three siblings here.
0: You're a University of Illinois Chicago student. Is that right? Um, Champaign-Urbana. Oh, U of of, um, I at Champaign-Urbana. And were you a business
3: major? What did you study there? So when I was in school, I ended up jumping face first into uh, entrepreneurship. So I was building apps at the time, um, but I really fell in love with advertising. Um, So I studied advertising and I minored in business entrepreneurship.
0: What got you to the business of tequila then?
3: Outside of the classroom, um, I had always been kind of creating experiences, so I worked very heavily in the music space, um, in the film space, and I would create different festivals and culturally relevant festivals, and that was my first introduction to dealing with spirits brands, and ultimately, I wanted to create a brand that was true and authentic um, to the folks that Um, I was really around and a part of, and that's what ultimately started to lead me down the path of figuring out how to launch a tequila brand with my uh, business partner, Bilal Tahar.
0: I suppose you noticed, too. So, like,
3: this started in 2018, right? Yeah, we launched in 2018, started working on it in 2015. It's been a while. yeah,
0: yeah. Because it does seem like tequila is the hot spirit right now. And so I thought, well, if you're an entrepreneur, you would just go, hey, let's quick make a tequila. But you've been at this
3: for a while, huh? Been at this for a long time. Pre, uh, you know, this was before the big tequila boom that I call it. Now a bunch of celebrities kind of have it. But, yeah, we've been at it for a very, very long time. And at the time, tequila was still... Um, it, it it didn't really have its premium feel to it. So we felt that there was an opportunity to create a brand um, that was affordable, luxury, very premium, still very traditional, um, that had a very true and authentic story. So that's how we got started. Back then, it was much more difficult to get into the industry. So it took us longer than expected. But Yeah, it was before the big tequila boom that we're experiencing now. Yeah,
0: Well, do you like that the industry has come to you, or is it too crowded now? Would you prefer to have sort of carved this path out on your own?
3: (laughs) That's a great question. Well, you know what? I always had um, an inclination. Like, that was our... Our thought was that tequila was the category that could grow the most, right, and we needed to create a spirit that could fit into our community It's the only spirit that's uh, upper um it's a stimulant compared to every other spirit um you know it's uh it's definitely the most health conscious not that drinking is the most healthy activity but if you're if you're conscious of it, your body processes tequila um easier so mm. It was the only spirit that was true and authentic for us and it's what we were drinking. So, um, I'm glad that the market has caught up. I think there's a lot a long way to go globally. Um, we're a global brand, so um, if you're if you're telling a true story, I think there's always going to be um, folks that you can connect with, despite how crowded the category is. Well, what is your company's
0: story? I mean, you've mentioned that a few times, and I think I get it in part. You said you're in advertising; it's good to have a brand and have something behind that. What's what's the story then
3: of John Basil Tequila? Absolutely. We're the first multicultural millennial owned and operated spirits brand. So um, we are children of immigrants and we're speaking to the dreamers. We're We're talking to the folks that understand and know how much was sacrificed for us to kind of have the opportunities that we have now. And we're just letting folks know that we're also on this journey with them. We're toasting to their accomplishments. We're learning from their losses and we are continuing to dream forward. So that's who we're speaking to and that's what we're about. And I think that's ultimately how we've been able to connect with our core consumers.
0: So then what does your marketing look like then? So then are, is it is young people of color? Do they look like you or do they look like me? Or who, how, who do you target then?
3: Do you know what? The beautiful thing about our story is that it transcends a lot of demographics. It transcends a lot of um, socioeconomic status. What we try to do is, cre- is create experiences. So life is about experience, right? And we ultimately curate very specific experiences at a specific taste level, um, and folks that identify with that connect to it so they can look like (laughs) you know they can look like you or i um but initially when we started when we launched we thought they were going to be more multicultural more millennial based what we found is that that older generation right above us the 40 to 50 year olds have been our biggest supporters so far so
0: um that's funny because we talked to Chris Chelios a little while ago. He's m- older than you and me. Uh, is he older than me, uh, Pete? <laughs> but I mean, but uh, I, I do think it's important, wouldn't you say, to sort of find a lane and then market to that. Is this a premium um, spirit? That is, what's the price point? Because that sometimes sort of uh, determines who's going to be able to buy a certain beverage.
3: Absolutely. So we have um, we have multiple expressions. So we have a blanco, a reposado, añejo launching soon. Um, and our we always like to try and place our product as affordable luxury. So it is a premium product, but you're you're paying slightly under premium prices. Um, so you can get our blanco for about thirty nine ninety nine, our reposado for forty five to forty nine ninety nine, and then our añejo is coming out soon. And I don't
0: uh, price tequila usually, but you say that would be mid-range or slightly below the average cost of a bottle on the shelf at Benny's?
3: Right. That'll be well slightly below the premium bottles oh, on, I see. The, uh, yeah. on the shelf at Benny's. So it's kind of right under your Don Julio's, right under your Casamigos, but we're providing a quality product. Um, you know, a product that's above quality.
0: So, where then is this product made? Here, where where did they make it? What an ambitious thing! I mean, a how do you make tequila? How do you make it in vast quantities? Uh, it must have been fun picking out the bottle and the label design, and then
3: absolutely.
0: How do you get absolutely. a distributor to actually get it into stores?
3: All of that. Yes. So it's it's it was, it's been a journey. We. uh, First trip down to Mexico was in 2015, and that's where we really started our education on learning how to make a quality spirit, a quality tequila. Um, so all of our product is made in tequila Jalisco. Our agave plants are a blend of the high and low land agave plants, which is a bit unusual, but we wanted that to give it a full body um, taste profile. So we have the earth tones. We also have the citrusy notes. Um, then when we, we launched, it was was like, we really had to start brick by brick. It was very, very small. When we launched, we launched with about 800 cases, which is probably the bare minimum. And then we just continued to reinvest over time. So it was very much. So a show and prove it was, we worked with local artists and creators to come up with the bottle concept and design. I worked hand in hand with, um, A great Chicago artist named Nico Washington on the front label, still designing the Añejo bottle as we speak, but it's been very much so a small core tight-knit team and just showing improving. We started with one store, showed that we could sell. Um, from there, we were working with Romano Beverage, which, you know, so grateful for them for taking going on this journey with us. And we have now grown to about 600 locations, so still trying to grow further.
0: Duemo, is it, is it in the liquor stores? Is it at Jewel? Is it in Binney's around Chicago?
3: It's in all of the Binnie's. It's in most of the mom-and-pop shops. Yeah. We are working on Jewel, Osco right now. Um, so hopefully this spring it'll be available there. Um, and then Trader Joe's is in the pipeline as well. Yeah.
0: Well, good luck to you. I haven't tried it. I will. I, th- I think the bottle shape and oh, design. we
3: gotta get you a bottle of ASAP. <laughs> we got to do this yeah. right now. <laughs>
0: I'll use my own hard-earned money and I'll buy some. I like it. You know, sometimes I think the ornament of the bottle shape is something that matters, too, because I'm not always drinking it, but if you can see it on a shelf or sitting on a bar, you like to have something that's pretty to look at. I think what you have come up with is very nice.
3: Thank you so much. We wanted a piece that we always, we love art, and we wanted our bottle to kind of represent that. And I think as folks have started to put floral arrangements in the bottles after yeah. they finish it, yeah. that, was, that was like the number. That's as that's as good as it gets for us, because it's something that they want to keep and cherish, and like you said, keep it as, on display at their homes. And Umolu. Uh, we appreciate that.
0: Duimo Umolu is the founder of John Basile Tequila, John Basile, B-A-S-I-L, John, and it's J-O-N, com is the website. I'll look for it, and congratulations. Thanks for visiting with us today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you.
0: More business news with Steve Grzanich.
4: Start your timer. It's time for the Wind Trust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. A seed round has landed a Chicago fuel startup, $4.5 million. Celadine Technologies is developing hydrogen fuel cells designed to accelerate industrial decarbonization. The company is working to create environmentally friendly fuel cells and makes electrolyzers that produce low-cost green hydrogen as fuel. The new funding will be used to accelerate testing and commercialization. The company, which operates out of Fulton Labs and Fulton Market, expects to double its customer base in the next year, according to Chicago Inno. Another Chicago startup developing a cybersecurity marketplace driven by artificial intelligence has been selected for Google's cybersecurity accelerator program. Hackerverse is one of five U.S.-based companies and one of 17 to be selected by Google. The accelerator program offers free support for each startup and allows those startups to work one-on-one with Google AI and cybersecurity experts. Hackerverse uses automated demos to give chief information security officers and other buyers an opportunity to find cybersecurity solutions. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Time for the business of food. Here's Steve
0: Alexander.
5: Yeah, thank you. And we heard last week that Illinois is number one in production of three crops, soybeans, pumpkins, and horseradish.
2: We grow about 2,000 acres of horseradish and produce about two-thirds of the country's horseradish.
5: I've got questions, and he's got answers after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, horseradish?
2: It's a large root vegetable, We actually have to use modified potato harvesters to harvest the horseradish root.
5: Horseradish farming in Illinois goes back to the late 1800s.
2: There were Eastern Europeans that settled in the Collinsville, Edwardsville area, just 15 minutes from St. Louis, Missouri, and it's been a a hotbed for horseradish.
5: That's where Matt McMillan farms horseradish. He also leads marketing at J.R. Kelly, a company that sells 10 to 12 million pounds of Illinois horseradish roots worldwide each year. So the growing season?
2: the plants we put in the ground in March and April.
5: And then there's generally no rush to get those roots out of the ground in the fall.
2: The crop keeps growing, so if you wait and hold off and you start in November, your yields are going to go up.
5: So there's harvesting still happening now?
2: Yeah, the diggers are in the ground.
5: And while the roots are dug out of the ground by machines, there's still a lot of hand labor involved.
2: Every root that you see on a supermarket shelf is trimmed by hand still.
5: And just like nearly every other thing that's grown on a farm?
2: There is a shortage of folks wanting to go out and work on a farm every day.
5: Horseradish most often shows up on our tables chopped up and mixed with vinegar, sugar, and salt, or the creamy kind that has mayo or yogurt mixed in to lessen the heat. By the way, you could bite off a piece of horseradish root and not feel any heat until you start chewing.
2: And the more that you chew on a horseradish root, the more reaction you'll get out of it.
5: So, is it good for us?
2: Oh, definitely. It's anti-inflammatory, great for clearing sinuses.
5: Oh, and how about this? The green shavings of wasabi that you're given with your sushi? Yeah, most of it is actually horseradish root with some color added because wasabi is really expensive to grow. From the dairy farm to your belly, today's National Mint Chocolate Ice Cream Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN.
0: Time for Skip Saviano, who is the Elmwood Park Village president. They've got their restaurant week up and running right now. Hey, Skip, you're back. Welcome to WGN Radio. Yeah, John, thanks for having me back. We're excited about our restaurant week this year. Usual drill upscale and affordable, and every you've even got 20 uh, prefix um, uh, menus for restaurant week, too, right?
6: Yeah, we have over 20 restaurants participating. You know, we have a very robust uh, rest, uh, restaurant scene here in Elmwood Park, and since the pandemic, our restaurants have really flourished. Uh, None of them went out of business. Hmm. They hung in there. We offered a program for residents. We sent out coupons so they could patronize our restaurants. And now the restaurants are coming back and offering great deals this week uh, throughout till the 25th of uh, February.
0: I didn't realize that. I mean, I hadn't thought about it, but uh, you must be very proud of that, that your restaurants all survived the pandemic, huh?
6: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because we, we... we have a great uh, price point in our restaurants along North Avenue, Restaurant Row, where all the meals, upscale and medium scale, are all very affordable to, to the normal individual. So it's it's a very successful theme that we have going here, and uh, we want to help
0: them any way we can. So do they do discounts during Restaurant Week then, Skip? Yeah,
6: if, if you go to uh, elmwoodpark.org Restaurant Week, you'll see all the deals that they're offering. There's some great deals uh, from every restaurant participating in Restaurant Week.
0: So that's Armand's Pizza, Blue Fire Restaurant, Cafe Cubano, Circle Tavern, Donnie G's. I could go over and over all of them, but uh, it looks like everybody's participating here, huh?
6: Yeah, and you know, it's funny. People ask me what your favorite restaurant is on Restaurant Row or in Almond Park. It depends what you have a taste for. We have something for everyone's taste. You know, you have Chinese, you have Japanese, you have Italian, you have Cuban, you have everything. We have Russell's Barbecue, who's been in town for over a hundred years. A lot of these restaurants are very iconic. Jim and Pete's over seventy years. Uh, uh, Armin's Pete's has been around for sixty some years.
0: How so, long? How long's New Star been there?
6: Ah, uh, probably about seventy years.
0: <laughs> That's uh, what's what's the deal there? Is that always been a restaurant kind of town?
6: Yeah, it really is. I mean, we mostly had Italian restaurants, but now with our diversity now, we're going into all different kinds of uh, culinary arts, and uh, it's working really well.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so through February 25th, it uh, started a couple days ago, so you guys are running now through the 25th. Um, I presume all the details and discounts are on your website? That's it. Uh, i Restaurant Week. to there elmwoodpark.org slash restaurant week elmwoodpark.org slash restaurant week they've slashed the prices it's still uh very affordable but uh all the looks like all the restaurants are participating too hey congratulations have a and you got nice weather too here skip so a good time for everybody to get over there ideal john thanks so much for having us we really appreciate it skip saviano is the village president